Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Perry Rabar, CEO of DVL1. DVL1 is a platform that aggregates, processes, and provides valuable tools for traders in the bond market to have greater understanding and transparency behind bond issues that they manage. And with that, here's my interview with Perry. Hello, Perry. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Perry Bear of DVO one tell us about DVO one So, DVO one is, is the first end-to-end data management reporting and analytics platform in the lending markets. And, and basically, what that entails is we, we, do, we capture all the data, we facilitate all the reporting and, and analytics for any of uh, the consumer and mortgage lending markets. We really got our start in the online lending market, where a lot of new lenders like SoFi, Lending Club, and so forth came about specifically focusing on student loans and, and consumer unsecured loans. But since then, we've, we've expanded into mortgages. And, and a lot of the problems that we're trying to tackle and bringing transparency into these markets and, and making the asset classes way easier to understand are born out of just uh, some of the challenges that we saw during the financial crisis, where there was a lack of transparency in these markets in particular, and it did a ton of damage to the economy. That's putting it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the, uh, the elevator pitch that I have for family members and friends, it's a little bit simpler. It's um, the less fintech version, which is, have you seen the big short? And I usually get a yes. And I go, you know, that scene where Christian Bale passes out on the floor trying to understand what's in all these securities. And then I'll usually get another yes. And I go, well, we're trying to solve that, making that <laughs> way more transparent and easy so people know what's actually going on in these markets. Well said. Okay, so let's talk about the history of why it is you started this company and what, uh, what drove you to it. So I graduated from college in 2004. I had a job. I interned at Bear Stearns in 2002 and three, and then got my start there right out of school. I didn't really know what I was joining and what it eventually um, amounted to, which is being in the heart of the financial crisis, being an intern in the mortgage department. But for me, it was always just amazing how much capital was being put out there off of so little information. Once I finally made it onto the trading desk, you know, we were bidding on loan packages of uh, 500 million to a billion at a time. And we had like five lines of information, like average FICO of the pool, average LTV, average California percentage, IO percentage, and so forth. And you were just putting these huge amounts of capital out there. And no one really cared about the data. It wasn't really a thing. And then um, the crisis came about. And that's when people really needed to kind of understand what, what was going on in these securities, what loans were backing them. And then even just the analytical infrastructures, a lot of archaic vendors and so forth. And so I always found the technology would be pretty frustrating. That night when Bear Stearns, that Friday, in March when Bear Stearns went down and, and we had to kind of get acquired over the weekend, like just trying to figure out what was the total mortgage exposure of, of the firm was a tough task and required tens of different spreadsheets and risk systems and so forth. So I always thought it was crazy how hard it was to just get accurate information. And I went over to JP Morgan and it wasn't until actually I left JP Morgan five years later and I came across online lending where it was just a totally different ethos with a lot of these online lenders. It was a data first product to investors. So they made all their data available directly to investors. And it was just large amount of data. And you know, the technology in this space is not was not really modern and big data is not something that a lot of institutional investors are good at handling. And so we really saw an opening where it was like, hey, we could build this state of the art infrastructure you know, focuses on the data, focuses on these online lenders, and then really kind of scale this out and cover it end-to-end for investors, really have a, a great user experience at the heart of this and modern technology backing it, and expand this across all of 
eventually consumer and mortgage uh, loans and, and starting with online lending. And that's what we set out to do. And um, we've been pretty successful at that so far, but I'd say we're still in the early stages of, of what we're doing. But a lot of this is born out of my experience and frustration from when I was on the other side, on the trading side of things. Yeah, it's funny. I think when we first spoke, I said, you know, tell me how you're different than Bloomberg. And your response was, have you tried to use Bloomberg? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you still have to type commands into Bloomberg. But I mean, Bloomberg is a real powerful tool. But for different asset classes, it, it has different functionality. And I still think Bloomberg's great. But I think primarily where we differentiate ourselves from any other vendors in the space is just really that focus on loan level data and making it super accessible and in a web interface where people could really answer their own question. You don't need the quote unquote quants on your desk to do stuff for you. If you're a trader, you have this web application that looks very much in line with the stuff that you use in your personal life. And you could really understand the performance of different originators, different asset classes, different securitizations, really compare them against each other. But really being that data hub first and foremost, and then building all the other functionality on top of that that people in this space require. But again, it's not an everyday product. It's not something that you walk off the street just knowing what those things are. It's a very niche market with a very bespoke kind of use case. And um, that's a tough thing to really kind of really understand and, and build tools around. So let's talk about the entire flow of this. So where is this data being sourced in the first place? With the online lenders, it was really easy because all of them, they originate their own loans and then they service their own loans. So we get the data directly from them. So that's the likes of, we started out with like Lending Club, SoFi, Prosper, Avant, Marlette, like a lot of these new fintech originators, most of which were focused on the consumer unsecured asset class and student loans. And that's where we really kind of got our exposure to the capital markets because it was an area that a lot of people were interested in. And this really started, this move really started in 2013. A lending club, you know, got its start way sooner than that. And it was initially a peer-to-peer -peer lender where you had um, an individual taking out a loan and then another individual funding that loan or multiple individuals funding that loan. But as they continued to grow, it was very clear to, to me that this was going to have to become a capital markets product. And that eventually, if they wanted to originate as much as they were, they projected that they would, you would need real institutional capital coming into that and really getting a good handle on what those requirements are for the market. We really partnered up with all these originators, got their data, and then really helped them kind of make that data easily accessible to that investor base. So you take all that and you put it in an easy to use digital online platform that allows them to do all the kind of core functions they would need to in terms of that. Can let's, let's speak to the specifics of the core functions of what they're going to need beyond just looking at the data and researching the data. What are you doing behind the scenes to make their lives easier? And what are you putting in front of them so that they don't have to do these calculations and work themselves? Yeah. So, I mean, even before you get there, the amount of processing that we do to the data, you'd be shocked. It's, it's kind of a, I wouldn't, but go on. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. It's kind of an unstructured, structured data problem. This data isn't, it should be structured, right? There's fields, there's fields as it pertains to the borrowers, fields as it pertains to the loans, and all of it is kind of the same, but not everyone reports it the same way. Everyone's got their own little nuances around doing things. So first, just the whole kind of ETL processing part of it, which is a very domain-specific kind of data cleansing and validation process to make sure all the data is right. Mortgage, any kind of loan servicing data, there's always things that don't make sense that come up. So just getting the data right and then standardized and validated that it's correct is step one. Then, it, then that kind of feeds into our, our database and then the web application sits on top of it. So 
a lot of times what people are doing is, let's say if a new investor is approaching Lending Club or SoFi today, what they want to really understand is like, okay, you're telling me the loans are going to perform this way going forward. Let's look at how your loans are performed historically. Let me get a real good sense on what loans are performing well, what loans aren't performing well, what do prepays look like, what do losses look like. And you have the ability on our platform to take like all 30 plus billion that Lending Club has originated to date since they've been a company and really filter that down by any attribute that you want. So let's just you say you want to look at loans that have a 680 to 700 FICO and you want to look at how those perform by the different quarterly vintages. You can answer that question in two seconds. That's like a pretty advanced time series query that's historically been tough for people to do. Because you have to take every single loan that's been originated, kind of line it up at the same starting point, and then evaluate their performance. And because you're looking at it from a perspective of how do these loans perform at the different ages or months on book, as opposed to a calendar month. So like, these are really complex things that are very domain specific to kind of the investment process that we've kind of made simple within a few clicks within the application. A lot of times people just want basic reporting. They want to be able to kind of do what to a normal person would be super advanced pivot tables, chatting by different under uh, collateral attributes and really looking at how much exposure in different types of buckets. Sometimes people want to drill down to a handful of loans. So anything that you really want to do, it's pretty flexible and you could do it across any originator that's on our platform because we've harmonized all the data. Excellent. So you've solved the problem of processing all this, getting it cleaned up and basically giving to them not only in a usable format, but in a dynamic format that they can basically then get intuitive information by running their own queries and, and being able to test various scenarios on their own. That sounds about right. Yeah, uh, I think you summed it up pretty well. Excellent. So then from there, like what else are you giving them? I, I know that you your website mentions any number of things beyond the reporting and data management to market surveillance and portfolio management. Let's talk about those other aspects. So I would say we have a data surveillance off market surveillance offering, which is a whole consumer universe, all the different originators being able to access performance on that. We just loaded up the whole uh, credit risk transfer universe in the Fannie Freddie world, which is $1.8 trillion market that's been done since um, 2012-13. We're about to load the whole Fannie Freddie performance data set that goes back to 1992. Downstream, there's other auto data sets that we're looking at. So we'll constantly be adding data sets to this market surveillance offering where it's kind of just this bundle of all the different data sets that are relative in the consumer and mortgage world under one roof. So you could really rip them apart and understand them with ease because they're pretty massive data sets. Then we have, I would say, loan portfolio management. So if you own a portfolio of loans, being able to access it in our platform and have all those tools on top of your portfolio so you could easily understand how much it's growing, how it's performing, identify cohorts. But I'd probably say the biggest thing that we've done that is, um, I would say, innovative for the structured products markets and has also been probably one of the biggest growth drivers of the company and probably the one that I most personally identify with, given my background as, as a trader, is what we've done in securitization reporting. And um, really what we've done here was we've come up with a new concept that's called a loan data agent. Historically, pre-crisis, there wasn't even loan level data for any securitizations easily accessible. You're just looking at like these weighted averages based on different attributes. Let's just say it was broken out by loan rate and in buckets of 25 basis points, and you had five lines that represented 500 million, hypothetically. You never really had access to loan level. Then post-crisis, 
companies like a core logic or a black knight started selling loan level data that was behind the whole mbs universe so like it would be mapped to the deals but you had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy this data set and then you'd have to do all the work on top of it internally and it usually required a lot of database resources internal engineers or quants to help you process it to then do your reporting on top of it and then it was never connected to the analytics engine the cash flow engine when you're running a specific bond so when securitization started picking up in in the consumer or online lending market, we were naturally plugged into all these different issuers like the lending clubs and SoFi's, but we didn't want to get into selling data as like a vendor. What we thought would be best is to kind of really change the model and make the data offering part of the securitization itself. So we came up with this concept of a loan data agent. I mean, not the sexiest term in the world, but it's pretty self-explanatory where we're responsible for making the data available to investors. So we get the data directly from the servicers. We've done a lot of work in the application where we're giving information about the deal, the bonds, how the deal's performing. You could easily just pull a loan tape if you wanted, but although the reporting tools are on top of it, and then it feeds directly into the analytics, we model all the deals as well. So if you want to run scenarios on the transaction and get a yield on a bond at a different price and so forth, all that's fully embedded in it. And we just get paid out of the deal. And so it was a pretty profound offering at the time. It was like about three and change years ago. We're approaching four years since our first deal. But uh, I think it was at the time it was kind of we got a lot of like, that's crazy because getting in the deal or waterfall is a, is a very kind of sacred place in securitized products world. But um, luckily, we had some people that were willing to give us a shot on it, Jeffries in particular. And we got into our first deal. It was a lending club deal with Jeffries doing the deal. And then since then, we've done it 200 plus times. It's become kind of like the standard offering in online lending. And we've done it with pretty much every major issuer. But really, last year, we made a real push to expand it into the mortgage world as well. And we chose mortgages specifically just because it was... It was a market that was kind of rebounding and really kind of growing again, like a 2.0, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great way to do things a little bit differently and make this market better. So um, since then, we've been focused a lot on mortgages and we've had a lot of success. And um, more recently, I think there's been a lot of pickup in interest in the non-agency mortgage market again, what they call the non-QM market. And right now we have, we've been in a number of different transactions with some big issuers like NRZ, Lamco, and then we have some dialogues right now with some other major issuers. So we feel pretty good about rolling this out into the mortgage world as well. You know, Dad, you know, it's been the 2.0 version of all of this. And after what we went through in 2008, I have no doubt that it's a much easier sell for these people than it ever was before. You'd be shocked how the market has a very short memory. And sometimes uh, yeah. it's, what people like to say is that, oh, this paper is way cleaner than what it was. And that's very true. But the whole point of a tool like ours is to make sure that it's very easy to spot if that starts to change, both from a origination characteristic standpoint, like what does the quality of issuance look like? And also from a performance standpoint, if performance starts to erode, people really being able to see that very quickly. And that's what I think has been pretty remarkable about the online lenders. I think uh, they get a lot of flack for performance not having been great. But the thing is, it's the real-time dialogue, right? They're releasing updated loan level performance on everything that they've originated monthly, and they're very accountable, right? They can't hide anything. Back and in they're, the day, they're responsible, guys, significantly better too. I mean, like I've seen academic studies that show that their FICO scores or their scores are vastly outperforming FICO at this point. So they're learning what works and what doesn't work in real time. So you know, maybe the returns haven't been there, but man, they're they're going to get better at this over time. Yeah, I would say the one thing I've given them is that they they iterate very quickly, but it's 
been, I think there was a lot of arrogance might be too harsh, but there was a lot of like, oh, we're doing using all this alternative data, blah, blah, blah. And we have a different approach to underwriting and the performance didn't really like validate that at all. Like they had anything special. And in fact, sometimes where you see like more or less is, I think it's, it's no secret that they've had the best performance and they're a little bit more of a traditional team of credit card guys rather than the Silicon Valley guys. So I think more and more they've, they've found their way, but I would say it hasn't been the smoothest path there for sure. Oh, no, and for and sure. they've had a pretty steep learning curve. Yeah, no, that's for sure. The data on the efficacy of their actual loan loss ratios just seems to be improving greatly over time, but did not start off in a good place. Yeah, right. Exactly. So basically, we've talked about that the way that you basically have managed to not only you've gotten kind of two double levels deep on this, you've, you've matched up the data the way it should be done. You're basically keeping created a tool for keeping people honest on this stuff. The comment about the paper's a lot cleaner than it used to be. Well, yeah, for now, because people are still kind of scared. But the longer we get in the tooth and not worrying about this problem, the more craps can be passed along. And, and frankly, I'd rather not, I'd rather trust and verify as opposed to just trust. So I understand where you're coming from. So what else should I know about your platform that we haven't covered yet? Yeah. And I would say the other thing is one, yeah, I think we make a lot of information that was not previously available available. But I think the other thing that we do is like, there have been ways to do some of the stuff that we do, but it's been the most crazy, inefficient, outdated processes that you, it blows people's minds that have not been exposed to this stuff. They think like, maybe I'm exaggerating that people legitimately do all this stuff in Excel. And I think, you know, when, when people join the company and they actually get firsthand exposure, especially the engineers, I mean, their minds are blown that this much capital is committed or traded around based on these crazy Excel reports. So we take some processes that people that where the information already existed and there was a process, but it's just been the status quo and really take things down that could take hours into minutes or seconds in some cases. And so there's no shortage of that. And it sounds like, wait, well, that's a crazy value prop, but you'd be shocked how set in their ways people are in certain degrees, especially with the capital markets. It's kind of like a very much, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And broke doesn't mean it takes four or five hours. It just means like literally if it's broken and it can't work. So we've been around now for over four and a half years. And, and we, I think we've developed a real solid brand in these markets and we're constantly kind of chipping away at the status quo mentality. Yeah, it's, you know, two things. First off, Excel's, the great thing about Excel is it can do almost anything. The terrible thing about Excel is that because it can do almost anything poorly, it becomes an excuse for complacency in so many places. And the other thing that's crazy is that you ask someone on the street, you, you think that most financial institutions are going to use the most cutting edge technology we can get our hands on to manage these large sums of money and to run things efficiently and make sure we can, we can, we know down to the microsecond what's going on with our portfolios. And meanwhile, the entire back office of every major financial institution I've ever seen is dominated by Excel. And I'll, yeah. and then first of all, a lot of times those models are built, God knows when, the guy who built them is no longer there. And a lot of blind trust is put on something that could have, could be off with one cell being off. There's no one there who actually understands it enough to actually fix it or detect that error. So kind of frightening when you really think about it. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've come into many processes where people like, they'll say, okay, let's do kind of a, a trial and we'll shadow some sort of Excel driven process. And I can tell you, it's easily over 50%. Anytime we do that, we discover some sort of dead cell error in Excel oh, in that existing frightening. process. And it's expected when there's that much volume and that many different spreadsheets. And that's the other thing is that a lot of times people joke with me, what do you have against Excel? It's like nothing. It's great for managing your personal finances, maybe, but you're managing a billion plus portfolio. Like it should, especially in 2019, there should be something more advanced behind this. 
Yes, spreadsheets were meant originally for just projections of accounting numbers, not everything we've basically made them do. And uh, yep. I often say that as much as I do love Excel, the reality is every time I see the use of it repeatedly, especially in businesses, it's not a success, it's a failure. It's a failure of that institution yeah. to, to actually move beyond a incredible, no matter what you do to streamline it, it's still a spreadsheet and it's still gonna be more burdensome than something that is custom, that is basically built towards a custom problem. So anyway, now that I've beaten up on Excel, <laughs> for, you, you've clearly thought about this. So, but I'm not in the trading world. I'm in the in the client-facing retail institutional world. And every time I visit a back office, I'm like, why? You know, I'm having the difficulty with you guys taking their turnaround time on this. Like, why is this taking so long? Why can't you figure this out? It's like, oh well, you know, we got to go through these five Excel spreadsheets, and I want to smash my head against the wall. And it's like, if it takes that long, like just just do the amount of math on the labor alone, and you could probably get that function taken care of. Like half the time, the answer is. You know that works in Salesforce or this thing or that thing. And it's just like, you just took the time to implement that. The efficiencies is inc are incredible. But yeah, uh, unfortunately, yes, the uh, momentum is a powerful thing. And good enough is basically the motto of most administrative services, unfortunately. Yep. Preaching to the choir here. Yeah. And I, it's, it's funny because every now and then I come across one of these companies on this podcast where like, what's your number one competitor? They're like Excel. I'm just like, oh man, <laughs> like it shouldn't be that way. So yeah, before we wrap I just up, call it status quo now at this point. It is, but you know, I think it's starting to change to some degree, at least depending on a different level of institution, because there are such superior solutions to what was being done before that what was taking a full day to get done and was prone to countless errors and you know, we're talking sizable company-wide errors. It's now basically being done at a button click or better yet, not even at a button click, just in the background. And other players are waking up to the fact that if they keep on doing things the way they've good, that they've been doing it, they're going to get crushed on margins at some point because these people are going to pass along those cost savings in, in lower costs. So I do feel like there's a slow awakening up happening, but I don't know how fast that's going to happen. So before we wrap up, a couple uh, questions that I ask everybody at the end. If you could wish for one thing that would basically, in your company or your industry, you know, besides the collapse of Excel, what would that be? Wish? Yes, one wish. Wow, that's an interesting one. I think um, I've never really thought about that. I've always kind of been a deal with the cards that you're dealt. I wish that in, I feel like with a lot of, when I talk to my other kind of like entrepreneur friends or just I look at other markets, I feel like the markets that people are in generally are very like forward thinking or consumer related and everyone's always looking for something that's more efficient and whatnot. I wish the capital markets, specifically like these massive financial institutions that we deal with would be like have an interest in advancing the ball and innovating and, and really putting on that forward thinking cap. Oftentimes that's the battle that we're facing is just that status quo mentality. And I wish kind of this specific part of the world would kind of wake up to that and really have like a, a motivation to kind of want to shift away from the status quo. So it doesn't feel like it's such a begrudging kind of thing that we're dealing with, you know? You and me both. And I mean, I kind of understand it because they are companies that come from a traditionally historic paradigm where you're paid for maintaining order, not taking risks, and essentially, lack of a better term, just basically making sure you, you generate the profit on target so you can hit that dividend. That's really what... Yeah the major financial institutions have always been, that's been their modus operandi and they haven't been rewarded for taking risks. And frankly, in the current marketplace, I mean, if JP Morgan decided they were going to create the most like crazy automated back office system and it was going to cost this ridiculous amount of money in order to happen, but don't worry, profitability is going to go up in like four or five years once it's done. 
they get crushed in the market. So they're not, you know, not everybody gets the, the, the free pass that Bezos gets when it comes to profitability. So I, I kind of get it, but at the same time, I kind of think that's great because sooner or later, someone is going to come along with that attitude and get rewarded heavily for it. So is what yeah. it is. So what has been the biggest challenge in getting your business to where it is today? I always think it's, it's people. People make or break the company. I think uh, it's oftentimes the most rewarding part about this and the most frustrating. It's time and time, every single entrepreneur I meet, when you start chatting and it's kind of, it's immediately, it's like, no one saw the people management component of, of this job uh, coming, right? It's the thing that literally blindsides everyone. When you think about starting a company, you're always, it's always the idea, right? You're fascinated with this idea. You're fascinated with the vision for it. And you always think about it kind of in business terms and tech or maybe technology terms. But with all of those, you need people to execute on it. And then with people come everyone's problems and everyone's challenges. And how do you get it all to work? How do you build a team? How do you build a culture? How do you deal with all the people management stuff that comes up along the way? It's the thing that none of us are really trained for, right? Like, you know, unless you're your history with HR and you're starting a company, you're pretty much not equipped to really deal with the people management component of being a founder and a CEO. And I think it's the hardest thing by far. Agreed. And you could have a great idea and it could literally be amazing. But if you can't build it, sell it, develop it, all that stuff and have the right people to do it. And especially in this day and age with this job market recruiting, it's in job retention, it's really challenging. So we put a lot of effort into the culture. I'm definitely a very culture focused CEO. I think what we're doing is unique in terms of being in the middle of the tech world and the deep financial world, uh, financial markets. And we offer something unique. We offer exposure to that world in a, I would say, way more user-friendly or employee-friendly context, right? Not working at a bank, not working at an asset manager, but really being in the guts of these markets and building real technology and not be limited to kind of legacy or all the regulatory bureaucracy that you might have being in those institutions. And we really focus on the people and both recruiting and retaining and making sure that this is like, you know, a great environment and experience for everyone. But it is by far, I'd say it's clear cut number one most difficult thing. It's, it's funny the timing of this because this morning I just met with a uh, listener to the show who basically was sharing the frustrations with living in, in an overly bureaucratic, large corporation, not concerned about any of the things you just mentioned. And that's one thing I think that a lot of people can, can benefit from, or at least smaller, smaller companies such as yourself definitely can have a strategic advantage in is just the culture of not being working in a large financial institution where the, where, you know what, basically no one really likes doing what they're doing or no one would, would do that job that way, but Hey, it's the way it is. So we're all going to do it this way. It's uh, yeah. not a pleasant situation to be in. And for me particularly, I mean, just coming from a financial institution, it was probably the biggest, biggest area I had to personally evolve just because on a trading floor, there's no, no one cares about your feelings. It's kind no of like kidding. a shut up. You're getting paid. So just shut up and do the work. And so versus here where I know in this job market, if you're an engineer, you can walk out the door and walk two steps and have a new job. So you can't, and, and you can't like, and for a startup like ours, we're not going to win on comp versus Facebook and Amazon and Google and so forth. So you really got to, I work for all, for my whole team. I serve them. And that's how I kind of approach every day. And, and how do we make this better? If I literally spent one day talking like I did on the trading floor, I'm pretty sure we'd lose a few people in one day. Like that's just not how it works anymore. It wow. has to be a collaboration environment. 
Yeah, 100%. Having spent some time on trading floors, I'm well aware that that sort of conduct is not acceptable in most locations. <laughs> so last question for you. What excites you the most about what it is you're working on in your company that basically gets you out of bed every morning and makes you want to tackle the world? I love what we're doing from a mission standpoint, from how our products are changing the markets. But the same thing, and it's kind of what I said about like the people side, that it is the ultimate like double-edged sword. It's like the hardest thing, but it's also the most rewarding thing. For me, really seeing all these people in the room together, working on a shared vision and a mission together, and really starting to see that kind of actually come to fruition is really awesome. And for me, even some of the things like some of the smaller things are really important to me, like seeing someone who joined this company three years ago and has really grown and evolved and is now managing a team of people and seeing them in meetings with their team is kind of cool to me and, and really the impact that we're having on people's lives. So, I mean, it's beyond just like the mission and what we're working on, but like, I really think what I find the most precious thing that we've created here is really kind of a family. And, um, you know, even just seeing people who came in here single, getting married, having kids, starting their own families, bringing their, their babies to the office. And we have a number of different DBO1 babies that, you know, that's just crazy when you think about this started as like me and a, a few people kind of in a room, barely sleeping, working around the clock. So now that this is like a company and we're real grownups in here, it's, just, it's, uh, it's something that makes me really proud. And I think if if you have that going for you, whatever you're working on will be successful. And that kind of speaks for itself. Agreed. Wise words. So Perry, thank you very much for your time. This has been great. Uh, I hope everyone's going to enjoy it. Thanks this. for having uh, me. been a great guest. So that was my interview with Perry of DVL1. I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.